the philosophy of psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. The following lecture contains information that may be difficult for some people. As it talks about personality, it talks about trauma. Listener discretion is advised. Lecture 28, The Fear of Being Found Wanting, Narcissism and Shame. So if you're interested in the myth of Narcissus and Ovid's transformations, it's an absolutely beautiful account of it. It's very short, it's about four pages long. And in one of the translations that I've got, he's got this absolutely lovely sort of capturing of the way that the desire is insatiable because he misrecognizes the nature of the desire, um, Narcissus. And as he bent to quench his thirst, he felt new heats arise. So he was just going down to the pool to, to get water, but ended up you know, completely passionately in love with his own reflection. And Ernest Jones was the first one to write about narcissism in a paper called The God Complex, and he was talking about Jung, because everybody thought Jung was such a narcissist. Actually, poor Jung was um, in, in the throes of what was going to be a psychotic breakdown, so he actually had what really is called NPD at a, at a psychotic level. Um, but Ernest Jones, who wanted to curry favour with Freud, um, identified all the attributes of the grandiose narcissist, the exhibitionism, aloofness, emotional inaccessibility, which often makes them quite charismatic. Um, he says that they're judgmental and they overvalue creativity. And this is actually quite familiar to the way it's described in the DSM, certainly in the 94 DSM-4. It's all about um, grandiosity, fantasies of success, entitlement. Notice that shame, rage, reactions is right there in the um, the APA, in the DSM version, and the tendency to be interpersonally exploitative. So you can see that psychopaths and uh, Machiavellians would also um, fit that kind of situation. Except for Machiavellians are not very grandiose. They think they're kind of worthless worms, but they think you are too, <laughs> okay? So, you know, they're even-handed in the fact that they don't think anybody's any good. The grandiose narcissist thinks they're great and puts you down. The um, psychopath thinks they're great and puts you down. The Machiavellian, not so much. They don't think very much of themselves either. Okay. Well, psychoanalytic perspectives are really where you have to go if you want to understand how narcissism arises developmentally. Um, it's usually around parental insensitivity, failures of attunement and mirroring. Um, Cohort was the person who really spoke a lot about mirroring. He sees narcissism as something that we go through, all of us, and um, it's quite fine to be self-absorbed when you're little. It's not as appealing when you're older. It's something that you will naturally grow out of if your parents have sort of indulged you in the right way, in a sense. He thinks that it's a stage. Um, but if it persists into adulthood, it's a fear of being found wanting. Like, quite literally, you don't want to be found to be lacking in any way, and you don't want to be found to be sort of hanging out for anybody, depending, needing, or being vulnerable. And so the capacity to love is pretty stunted. Um, also, it's very difficult for narcissistically inclined people to acknowledge their own drives and appetites, because they're things you can't satisfy on your own often. You need others. Um, and that, so that's not a great thing from their point of view. They're also very um, unable to self-disclose, to trust, to express feelings of hurt 
and they're not good at repairing the hurt that they've caused because it means they have to acknowledge they've done something wrong. Now, Christopher Lash wrote a book that was a bestseller. I think it was called The Culture of Narcissism. Is that right? Something like that. Um, but it's actually, even though it's a bestseller, it's fantastic because it really retains what a lot of the literature subsequent to 1979 lost, which is rage, that rage is at the core of narcissism. It's not just about self-love. It's, it's also about these incredibly powerful emotions of rage and envy. But the way that our Western culture is seen to contribute to our narcissism, because we're all apparently increasingly narcissistic and June Twenge has certainly got data that narcissism's on the up and up in America, particularly grandiose narcissism. I'm, the results are not quite the same here. Um, the fact that we sort of, we don't really socialize with the same people in the longer term in the city. You kind of, you socialize with the diary. You see people, you know, for one hour, sometimes every two weeks or something like that. There's not that real community of bonds. And so we tend to rely on others a little bit less. We've kind of thrown back on our own resources. And um, unfortunately, that can sometimes make the narcissistic symptoms a bit worse. If you try not to depend on others, it's actually not a great thing. Also, we've got these cultural ideals of kind of impossible levels of beauty, often airbrushed, <laughs> you know. It's like, wow, why don't I look like that? Well, because I haven't been airbrushed, you know. Um, and wealth, uh, achievement, knowledge. And now with the internet, we're absolutely intimately aware of just how much money Tom Cruise can spend on Suri. <laughs> you know, right? We really know how wealthy these people are and how wildly crazy it is. And we can see the flawless beauty and we forget that it's enhanced. And you know, magazines without airbrushing would be quite different magazines. The other thing that's of great concern to those who are narcissistically inclined and massively of concern to psychopaths, which is why Beatrice's lecture next week is so relevant, is that they're very much concerned with hierarchy. They want to achieve, they want to be powerful, they don't just want to be averagely powerful, they want to be the best and at the top. And anybody who's really concerned with hierarchy, you can be pretty sure they've got issues around shame. Because if you if you really were quite comfortable with yourself, you wouldn't have to be absolutely number one, right? You'd be okay with being number three or 17 or something like that, or sort of kind of good, right? But you wouldn't have to absolutely be at the top. So that whole thing about who has to cut out of me and who am I more powerful than, that's the hallmark of, of narcissistically inclined people. And Donald Trump comes to mind. Okay. And this was sent through to me by a journalist last year to analyse. This is the kind of data that you get when you work with qualitative stuff. It's great. Have a look at what he's saying here. The reason you're holding this, you and I have got something in common. Like me, you're at the top of the food chain. Nobody eats you, okay? And no one puts you there. You put yourself... So you're not indebted to anybody. You don't owe anything to anybody. I respect that. So, mm, a bit of hierarchy going on here. Suddenly you're even being put above Donald Trump. He's respecting you. Okay. That's why I'd like to extend an invitation to you. That's going to cost you an awful lot of money. Okay. Maybe you know, maybe you've heard that because I'm so famous that this September I'm headlining a seminar on success in Sydney and Melbourne. And as you know, usually when I do anything, I do it big. <laughs>
<laughs> okay, grandiose much. But there's something else I'm doing during my brief stay. It, while it's not exactly small, it's exclusive. Okay, so only the top people are going to be involved. Now, what's interesting to me from a charismatic point of view is the charismatic is someone who satisfied the need that you've got without you having to acknowledge that you've got that need. Now, if I'm narcissistically inclined, I don't want to admit that I find it difficult to lean on people. I don't want to admit that I wear my friends out. I don't want to admit that I don't actually really have any friends that much because I'm so, such a self-made person and I'm so busy trumpeting about my self-made successes that I've worn out all of my friends. So I cannot acknowledge that I'm lonely because that would acknowledge that I need, right? So notice this sort of fabulous way that party is in scare quotes because you couldn't invite these people to a party because they're serious people, right? So this won't be just a party, but it will be a party. So you lonely person who made it to the top all by yourself are going to be among like-minded people. So, and there's going to be, you're going to be one of a small hand-select group, so you're not going to be brushing shoulders with people like me, right? They're going to be nice people, they're going to be self-made, they're going to be at the top of the food chain as well. I wouldn't want to be at this party, can I just say? this? Is, I would if I were gathering data, right? I really would. If I got to interview them all, I'd be there. Okay, um, so there you go. And he's saying, don't hesitate, Play, playing on that slight risky mentality that goes with narcissism too, I don't quite know why. Um, but they're often quite big risk takers. One of my students looked at bankers who are very high in narcissism, very high on risk taking with your money. <laughs> okay. So shame. There's shame there about wanting to be cared for, belonging and acceptance, but not just being accepted for one's efforts and actions, because anybody will respect you if you've got power, but actually for who you are, for what one is, and that's the heart of shame. We can feel guilt about bad actions, but we only feel shame when we feel that our whole self is worthless. Our whole self is worthless. And you can't modify who you are. You can modify your behavior. Now, this seems like a distraction, and it sort of is, because I really just want to tell you about this, but it's also sort of relevant, but not very. Okay. There's a very beautiful little book called The Anatomy of Dependence that Takeo Doi, a Japanese psychiatrist, wrote in the 1950s when he went to America, and he just found it such an amazing culture shock. And he, he wrote this book suggesting that the whole of Japanese society is powerfully structured around dependence. That the person who gets to depend is the most powerful person. And the emperor doesn't even tie his shoelaces. I'm sure he doesn't have shoelaces, right? But um, <laughs> cultural insensitivity on my part, sorry about that. Okay, so what a my literally means, etymologically, going back to the history of the word, is cleaving to the breast with no shame. So you're hanging out, you need, you want, you're being suckered. There's no distinction between you and what you're getting the satisfaction from. And there's no shame either. There's no indebtedness. There's no burden. The, that, is, that good breast is not going to turn around and go, listen here, little sucker, you know, you rely on me for your existence. You should be ashamed of yourself. It's just not going to happen, okay? It's just joy, total joy. Any concerns of dependence or exploitation, forget it. This is kind of prototypical ideal merger. And that's what cohorts say we all should be allowed to go through. Namely, you don't distinguish between yourself and a full belly and the warmth of the sun and being fed and your mother, if it's a good mother. She's a self-object. She's part and parcel of you. So at an unconscious level, you think you're 
the same as that person. You're part of that person. And that's quite delightful. And when we return to it at later stages in life, if we've had a good upbringing, when we're having sex or when we're dancing, it's also quite delightful. So we can return to that stage if we've had a good time at that stage. But if parents haven't permitted this kind of connection, or if they have had, listen here, little psycho, you're relying on me, and they've said that too soon, shame, okay? Um, because you should be permitted to depend with no thought of thanks or indebtedness. And you'll notice with narcissistically inclined parents that there's often an incredible emphasis on how much they've given, and they haven't often really given all that much normatively. You should be allowed also, cohort says, to idealise with no thought of the imperfections of the other. And it's normal, he says, to just get a glimpse of that. Yeah. Which is why they do tend to have lots of um, lots of partners. They they tend to go for attractive partners that look good on their own, you know, and will move serially through um, different partners. And with um, psychopaths, where there's that narcissistic element, they have a series of quite sort of trivial sexual encounters that are barely motivated. It's like she was there, you know, or he was there. Like, yeah. So not a lot of, and actually, I think the literature is quite rich on their sex lives, and they're not, they're not very satisfied individuals. Okay, but what? So what these researchers cater at all is saying is that narcissistic individuals are trying to get childhood needs met in adulthood, and that's why it can all feel a bit strange. And that article's up online for you already if you want to have a look. So um, given that a my is an ideal merger. If you lack that ideal connection, which could be like an attunement, then shame proneness might arise. So a, a tiny word about shame, but this really, really is very important. Shame is a fleeting emotion that all of us have. I don't think any human alive has not felt some feature of shame. Even psychopaths in the research that I've done have the most basic kind of shame. Like they know that they're different. You know, that's it. They don't get that self-reflective, oh, gee, I'm bad for having done that. But they go, oops, I'm not like everybody else. They get that much. But a fleeting emotion can also become a disposition, something that's really true of you. You become, you're the sort of person that might experience shame in a lot more situations, more intensely than others. How does that happen? Well, Otway and Vignol's sure, that's a kind of statistical thing, over-evaluation plus coldness, takes you some of the way, but if you really want to get into the heart of it, I honestly think the psychoanalytic literature is a bit richer, and Andrew Morrison says, you've got to look at the kinds of failures that happen in early parental relationships, and Jeffrey Young's schema therapy addresses these kinds of failures, which is what's so great about that. Um, so you can either have experienced active humiliating attacks where someone has exposed your weaknesses in front of others, right? But not all of them are going to be like that. You might just have someone who's, you know, so flaky that they don't really tune into you. You don't have that significant attunement that makes you realize, oh, this person's a self-object. They can see my pleasure. They've got a mind like me. Okay, so you just don't get that optimal attuned experience. And so what happens is that children become treated as extensions of the parents. And an article that I've also got online for you, Vice and Tuba, cite an early case study with Vice where she was um, talking to the parents of a narcissistic child 
And the parents couldn't see that they were contributing to the child's narcissism. They couldn't see that they were getting um, satisfaction and fulfillment from his achievements. They thought he was a misunderstood child prodigy and that his bad behavior was because no one understood him. In fact, the wee guy was a bit of a narcissist in the making and the parents were not you know, clicking to what they were doing to contribute that. So there's overvaluation of skills, but a rejection of something about the child. And it's quite a painful combination, which means that the child ends up splitting around skills and the bits of themselves that are not accepted for their own sake. And that's what's, what's so powerful about splitting. And that's how something fleeting like shame can start to become shame proneness. Now, there's this absolutely wonderful article by Resnick. He's a gestaltist, so not a psychoanalyst. He's a gestalt therapist. But his paper, The Recursive Loop of Shame, says when you end up getting that characterological shame, that kind of neurotic, embedded, stay with you most of the time shame, what it means is that you've not just taken on board the values and the norms of the other. You've taken on something of their emotional attitude to you. You've taken on board perhaps the contempt or disgust that they have felt for you, and you feel contempt and disgust towards yourself. So you're in a sort of state of shame, but you're visiting it upon yourself. So in the past, people used to say, guilt is something that you feel within your own psychology. Shame is an interpersonal emotion. That doesn't hold. You can visit shame upon yourself. It can be intrapsychic. So that's not the way to distinguish it. It's better to distinguish it that guilt is about a specific action. Shame is about oneself. And so you can end up internalizing shame. And Nagrayo et al., Nagrayo, Bonanno, and I can't remember the other researcher, they say that if you've got shame ongoingly within you, it feels like an inner attack. And, and people who've experienced child sexual abuse can end up with shame that feels like an attack on themselves. They actually feel deeply defective and defeated. It's like the very things they should be feeling towards the perpetrator, unfortunately they feel towards themselves. They feel defective and defeated. So um, Helen Block Lewis, not Michael Lewis, Helen Block Lewis, says that the superego, which is loosely transcribed as the morality or conscience or ego ideal of narcissistic patients, is quite shame-prone. And so it's kind of like the image that you've got of yourself is as somebody frozen in unrequited love. You can see why the myth is really relevant. You can see how the myth is really clinically relevant. It's quite bizarre. And so what the person's actually trying to do by getting so much love, so much admiration, is they're attempting to restore these lost attachments, but they're not doing it successfully. So one of the sort of tasks of life that um, Celia Harris is going to pick up on in her first lecture with you after the break is how a sense of self arises through our, our experience of memory, and cultural experience of memory. Um, and developmentally, shame can have a big part to play in how we shape our sense of self. If our parents say, I'll love you madly so long as you become an accountant and don't become a sculptor, right? The bit about you that was all about, I want to be a sculptor, right? No, got to leave that bit at the door. So it's like something really vital to you has got to be left aside 
if you want to be loved. And so in a sense, you've got this horrible task where you've got to, uh, you've got this urge to live up to parental expectations, but you've, those parental expectations disregard or violate something that's absolutely unique to you, like you want to be a sculptor. So they're offering you, offering you a sense of closeness and love and approval, so long as you leave something outside. So it's, it comes at a high price, and it splits you, because of course you need their love and approval. So you leave the cherished bit of yourself outside, and that's the beginning of the false self. So what's sad is that those that you depend on, who should be showing you how to soothe your emotions and tuning and all that, they become the people that you've got to hide out from, or part of you has got to hide out from, and that's the splitting of the self. And that's how narcissism forms. You get grandiosity, the bulletproof exterior. You get vulnerability, the underlying feelings of inferiority and shamefulness. And this actually may be just what you have to do if you've got faulty parenting or insensitive parenting. So it's kind of like you're trying to cope in an impossible situation. And that's Paul Wink's comment. He's great. So if you wanted to measure narcissism, how would you go about it? Well, when I said this last year, I said you could use the NPI and Hendon and Cheek scale to measure the NPI grandiosity, Hendon and Cheek to measure vulnerability. Or you could use the PNI, which had just kind of come out recently, and I wasn't sure if it was going to be a good scale or not, but one of my honours students this year has used it, and it works a treat. The only thing that's a little bit interesting about it, and I can tell you this now, um, is that when you measure grandiosity using the NPI and you measure vulnerability using Hendon and Cheek's 10-item scale, they're not correlated at all. But when you measure grandiosity and vulnerability using the PNI, they are correlated. They've got about a 50% variance in common. So who knows? Who knows? I have to have another look, perhaps do some more research. So what's the message that shame gives us? It, it says to you, some feelings are not okay, especially hostile or selfish feelings. So you may end up feeling really bad if you look after yourself. And you get people that don't ever look after themselves. They just look after other people. And so that means that sometimes you have a false self that presents yourself as very, very socially desirable. Okay. No, no, my table manners are always perfect. I never eat more than I should, etc. And this is, a false self is likely to arise in a family atmosphere where you're constantly being evaluated. So what, what happens with um, narcissism? Basically, it's a kind of layering up, if you like. You, you split, you partition, and you present a false self, and that's your persona. And so any fragility that you might have is masked by that persona of self-reliance. But then you get very attuned to self-presentational concerns. You're only going to put forward for consumption those parts of yourself that fit with the cultural dream. You're only going to show the bits that are the bits that we currently value at a given moment. And that grandiose front is going to seem a little bit entitled, a little bit overvalued. And the reason there's that extra energy going into your false self is because it's protecting something. It's hiding something. So at core, there's that interjected shame, if you like, a feeling of worthlessness. You're harshly critical of oneself. You've taken on that parental devaluation of the tender parts of yourself. 
you can't self-soothe because you can't acknowledge you're even in pain. You've got quite a damaged sense of self, really. You've got a very fragile self-esteem and you're afraid to be found with certain needs. So it's it's a quite a painful positioning. So the solution is that they try to seek self-esteem from sources external to themselves. So you've got this extreme vulnerability. You've got this kind of sensitivity, this disproportionate degree of self-concern. They can't really even focus on the world. It's just all about them because they're in such suffering. And they don't have self-compassion. The data is really in on that. And they can't soothe their own feelings. So it's quite quite tough stuff. So they're only as good as the last good piece of news that they've had. So they tend to remind you that they've had an awful lot of good news and great outcomes and great results. And you get that sense of hollowness. Certainly they sense hollowness and emptiness. Very concerned about appearances. But there's a kind of a fugitive feeling, as if at some level they know that they're slightly fraudulent, that what they're presenting is not the full story. And there's very likely to be some kind of harsh internal commentary about their goodness or badness. But if damage occurs to the relationship that they're in, they all they want to repair is their own grandiosity. They're not concerned about re-establishing the relationship. They just want to re-establish their good self-image. So they won't actually go into work to repair if there's been a rupture in friendships. And I think that's partly why they lose their friends. Because most of us can cope with people leaning on us a fair bit. I don't think it bothers us. But if, if someone leans on you, and then if something goes wrong, they don't go in to do the work to repair that relationship, you're not quite as well disposed to hang in there for the future. So they find dependence shameful. They masquerade as if they need someone, and they wear their friends out. So what you've got is two stable presenting styles. You've got a core difficulty with identity, and, and Zoe, given Williams and I, Wilson and I, found this years ago in her honours thesis, which has been published. So there are real identity difficulties, and that's true of both styles of narcissism. And they've also got um, real difficulties with self-esteem, but those difficulties get expressed in different ways. With the grandiose person, it, they want to be unique. Absolutely at the top of the food chain, you know, uniquely important. And it's as if part of them is saying, if I'm not all that matters, I'm nothing. So quite rivalrous, quite jealous, quite envious, and this exaggerated sense of self-importance and self-centeredness, and yeah. So they they uh, seem certain of unlimited success, but it's not the full story. So that larger-than-life exterior, how does it come across? Well, they'll name-drop. They won't say, gosh, I was so lucky I got to meet Baudrillard or Eric Erickson or something like that. They'll go, oh, and I was having lunch with Eric. Okay, that's the way that Nancy McWilliams describes it in her article with um, Lependor. And you end up feeling strangely put down. I never get to meet important people, do you know? And they may compliment you on having a friend like them, right? <laughs> like, Thanks, I think. Okay. Um, but inside, there's all those little tender bits that they were made to leave at the door of the relationship with their parents. And those little tender bits are still frozen in time, in a sense, a self-conscious child. 
Okay, with covert narcissism, really recommend the Hendon and Cheek scale. It's a little beauty. It never lets you down. Ten items. Unfortunately, all positively worded, so you can't reverse score. That's okay. It still works. Um, what you've got on the exterior is the kind of, you know, the Uriah Heap sort of thin skin, don't worry about me, I'm useless, why would anyone take care of me, that would be right. Oh, I'm sounding like that guy, that robot from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy, aren't I brain the size of a planet and give me this job to open doors, you know. That's it, the sort of unsung hero, very resentful of the presumptions of others and, and quite envious. Inside, though, watch out, there's a grandiose vision. Highly defended. This is the group that, in the research that I did with a couple of um, postgraduate diploma groups, we found to be the scariest in terms of road rage. It was like, oh my God, that was the moment at which, honestly, my gestures came below the dashboard. Because I thought, if one of those is in the other car, I'm done for. <laughs> so I just don't even give the evil eye anymore. Okay. Okay. So, so you've got this polarity of the two styles. If you've only got grandiosity in a personality, you're just an egotist. And good luck to you, I say. Go for it. right? But if you've got grandiosity and vulnerability, then it's narcissism. Okay? And, and there's always got to be both before we're talking about narcissism. Adaptive narcissism, there is no such thing as what I would say, even though you'll see it in the literature. Because adaptive narcissism is just when you take the NPI, you take out entitlement and exploitation, and what are you left with? Leadership abilities, confidence, social potency. That's not narcissism, that's leadership abilities, social potency, being able to tell a good story. You know? You've got to have both before it's narcissism. And what um, Zoe and me and Wayne found is that if you've got identity concerns and metacognitive deficits, those are the hallmarks. Metacognitive deficits just means I split people and I don't realize I'm doing it. I can't self-soothe and I don't know that. I treat reality as though, you know, I treat my perceptions as though they're reality and I don't know I'm doing it. Okay, so it's, a, it's an incapacity to really look at the status of what you're thinking and feeling and to reflect on that. And those are the two biggies, really. Okay. So both forms of narcissism want to avoid anything to do with being fallible or being dependent. And so remorse, gratitude, forget it. Okay, you can see why I think psychopaths uh, got a lot of narcissism to them because they never show remorse and they're very unlikely to show gratitude unless it's going to butter you up so that they can eat you, basically. Okay, um, narcissistically inclined people are very sensitive to the unspoken, though. Um, some bits of the literature suggest they're even more sensitive to unverbalized emotional messages than other people. And that's why they can be quite uncanny sometimes, because they'll say something that you've been thinking but that you didn't think was obvious at all. Um, and so that's quite an unusual feature, I think. And we want to do a bit more research on that, I would say. They tend to treat others as extensions of themselves. And, and what often you'll find is that they're repeating in their treatment of others how they were treated by their parents, which is why therapeutically, if they're putting you down and making you feel worthless and useless as a therapist and go, do I really pay you that much? You're so bad, right? You go, oh, man, I can imagine what it was like to be in that family. Okay. So friends feel overly needed and rejected at the same time. So the two key emotions of narcissism are shame and feeling ugly and hopeless and impotent and envy. 
feeling that other people have got assets that they can really enjoy and you can't. And those two things are interlinked. It doesn't seem obvious. But if you think about it, um, narcissistically inclined people tend to be pretty judgmental of others. They love the downward comparison. You know, I might be bad, but you, but you're worse. Okay? And that's a great way of, um, you know, uh, dealing with their own envy and things. If they can sort of say, oh yeah, it's a Peugeot, but it's a, it's a yellow Peugeot. I never drive a yellow car. You know, so they, they don't feel the envy quite so much. So in some ways, the whole personality is orchestrated as a mask or a piece of armor, if you like, some body shielding against lacking. Um, and yet they feel that they're going to be exposed and they feel this terrible envy and they're caught criticizing and devaluing. So it's not a happy place to be. Um, the, the worst fate for them would be to be ignored. So even bad attention is better than no attention. And they often do use others as a way to stave off this terrible inadequacy and helplessness that they feel. So what is it like to be in relation to a narcissistically inclined person? They're going to be very self-absorbed. They're going to need to be the center of attention. And this is going to have an impact on the people that they're around. If they're kids, you'll notice they tend to be very provocative and they probably control you quite a lot. You, you don't really get much choice as to how you interact with them. So what Cocot says, it's as if narcissists don't see others as others in their own right, but they just use them as functions. Like, this is my self-soothing friend, this is my self-esteem maintenance friend, and when they can't fulfill those functions, if they're a bit down in the dumps, oh, I don't want to play with them today, because they're no use to me. Okay, So it's not really loving people for being people in their own right. So in a sense, what they're trying to do is recreate an early relationship, and that's what gives you the window in. Let them recreate that relationship and observe, see what's happening. And it may be that if social learning theory in Milan is right, that the parent inflated the child's sense of omnipotence and rewarded their exhibitionistic displays of competence. Okay, that will tell you what was going on. It may be that they want someone to do a stand-in for parts of themselves that have never developed. I can't feel compassion for myself. Could you feel compassion for me? Okay, that's getting a person to do a stand-in for some psychic function that hasn't developed. What do therapists feel? Well, I'm not sure I've really had a full-blown narcissistic person myself, so I'm speaking from other people's writings now. Um, but apparently, I don't think I've ever felt bored in therapy. I'm so busy trying to get it right. you know. But um, apparently you feel totally interchangeable. Um, you feel bored. It's, they're not really talking to you, and you feel a bit exploited. That's what people say. In ordinary life, I feel I've got more of a handle on this than that I probably have had um, narcissistically inclined friends in my time. And I have noticed, now that it's been brought to my attention, that they were never very good at showing remorse or expressing gratitude. Because if I apologize, it means I'm fallible. I can do something wrong. If I express gratitude, it means I needed you. And I'm conscious of that, willing to avow it and share it publicly. Wow, that's quite a strong... Thing. If you want to masquerade as being without need or without sin, that's not going to come easily to you. Also, if you've got this sense of shame and you've got these unrealistic ideals of needing no one ever, no way you're going to be able to live up to that. 
And if you're also slightly thin-skinned and you're really sensitive to any criticism or even a tone of voice that implies criticism, then you're going to find criticism everywhere. And so you've got really, really high standards. You're horribly sensitive, right? And you're feeling this shame and criticism everywhere. Wow, you can see the cycle. So that's why shame is to narcissism what guilt is to neurosis. It's the sort of central engine, if you like, of most of the features of narcissism. One of the most scary things for me about narcissism, and it's why I would want to distinguish a narcissist from an egotist if I was going to Antarctica with them, is I would not want to go to Antarctica with a narcissistically inclined person because any threat to their sense of self that produces feelings of shame or inferiority or vulnerability is likely to lead to rage. And whereas anger might be satisfied by getting the person out of the way, Rageful revenge is not content until it obliterates or attempts to destroy the person who has witnessed or caused their humiliation. You may have done nothing, but if they experience you as having caused it, then you're still in trouble. Adam Phillips, in a beautiful book called The Beast in the Nursery, chapter two, I think it is, called Just Rage, he says, once you know who or what humiliates you, you know what it is about yourself that you ultimately value, that you worship. Tell me what makes you enraged, what makes you feel truly diminished, and I will tell you what you believe, what you want to believe about yourself. And I actually did a whole little empirical study, which I'm just writing up now, interviewing people about their experiences of rage. And it was actually a, a methodology that I based on Adam Phillips's chapter, and it worked out in a really interesting way. Okay, so what are the defenses? Idealization, angels, devaluation, demons. And they either idealize themselves and devalue others, or vice versa. You've got perfectionism, trying to meet unrealistic ideals. You've got grandiosity, convincing yourself you've actually managed to live up to those impossible ideals. And crushing shame if you fail. So the pattern of emotions can be either chronic criticism of self and or others, or an, a joylessness, you know, an inability really to find joy in, in, in amongst the sort of imperfections of life. Because life is never going to be perfect. So you have to actually be able to find joy when not everything is perfect about you or others or the world. The problem is, they don't just keep it to themselves. They tend to project that idealization and devaluation onto others. And so they can be quite cult-prone narcissists. Because if a, if a big, grandiose, divine leader comes along and says, not only have I conquered you know, power, wealth, beauty, success, but I've conquered death. I'm going to live forever, and I can show you how to do so too. There's an enormous uh, appeal for someone who wants the impossible. And so that sort of projection of oh, the supernatural rightness of everything this person is saying, they're God, they're divine. Narcissists are capable of creating leaders like that. Okay, so I've said they see others as functions and narcissistic extensions. They don't see others as separate. What happens, of course, unfortunately, is they have enormous interpersonal difficulties, and that's what Zoe and I had a look at. That look, We looked at the kind of interpersonal cycles that they get into, the idealization and devaluation. Um, and that constant search for admiration, which unfortunately is the hallmark 
of narcissism. So what you've got with narcissism is a fragmentation of self. Literally, they're in pieces. And they try to maintain a grandiose ideal, but they have to use other people to do that. And that's where that constant need comes from. They want to seem completely whole and bulletproof, but they're actually in pieces. And so they seek confirmation, they can't self-soothe, and they have got all these extreme emotional fluctuations, and they don't know what to do in the face of them. They just don't know where to begin. They know they get upset about nothing sometimes when they've got insight, but they don't know what to do. And all they keep trying to do is protect the grandiose ideal, and it's, it's not the solution. It's the symptom, in a sense. But that's what they're trying to do to counteract this unconscious shame that they've got. So the, the grandiose fantasy is that they don't have need or sin. They can judge and devalue you, and their needs should be met without having to be expressed. And have a look at the McWilliams and Leffendorf article, because the example that Burston gives is absolutely outrageously funny, but I really can't repeat it on eye lecture. <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry about that, but it's just too difficult to say. Okay, all right, so everyday defences. They pathologise others so that you don't notice their imperfections. They deflect the blame. They don't brag, because that would be obvious and cheap, but they do name, name drop. And instead of you feeling happy for them, you feel strangely distant and inferior. So what I'm saying is you've got to be able to use yourself as an indicator of what's going on for this other person. Now, somebody wrote me a beautiful question and said, how would you know if you felt strangely diminished? You might just have low self-worth. You might have a, a complex, you know, that you're deficient. And I thought, that's a really good question. But I would feel that with everybody then, because it would be my stuff. If I only felt it was this person, it's something going on between me and them. It could still be me, but it might not be. Okay, so if, if you only feel it with that one other person, chances are there's something interactional going on that you might want to have a look at. But they really don't apologize, and you've got to be so on the money to realize that they're not apologizing. They take all sorts of pseudo-apology forms, like, oh, the traffic was so bad, and you go, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, and I've been so stressed, that's why I'm half an hour late. Oh, you poor thing. But they haven't said, I'm so sorry for taking up your time. Okay, or they'll just go, oh look, you know, here's ten dollars, shout yourself something, or I brought you a bunch of flowers. Why? Mm -hmm. They're not going to say because I'm late and have inconvenienced you. They just give you the flowers, which means you can't say, gosh, I'm angry at you for being so late. So, to be able to detect that this is occurring, you need to be able to pay close attention to your inner state, and you have to trust your inner experiences. So you've got to have had a good enough upbringing for that to be possible or good enough training for that to have become possible. So in other words, I'm suggesting that one way, and this is one of my favorite exam questions, if I ask you, in what other ways other than self-report measures could you assess personality? I'd be hoping you'd be chatting about qualitative techniques, of course, but I'd also be hoping that you'd mention this, because this is the way that sometimes you have to do it right from the start. You have to assess personality via your inner state. If you feel that an apology is being bypassed, track that. I remember one of my um, colleagues who had done something quite tough towards me and one of my students, and I was in the 
bar and that person said to me, have you forgiven me yet? And I said, is that an apology? <laughs> because I had just read this article. so And I would never have got it previously. I'd have gone, of course I have. Or, you know, or, yeah, bought them a drink or whatever. But it's really important to note. I still bought them a drink and had a great time, but I noted what had happened, and that's always quite interesting. That was many years ago now, thank goodness. Okay, so how is an apology bypassed? By deflecting blame, by focusing on the other, or by using gestures rather than words. So just keep an eye on that. It's interesting. An inability to thank. Instead of saying, thank you so much, they go, you did a very good job. Or, gee, that's not bad. <laughs> okay? Or they get, they sort of get you to thank them in certain ways. Or they protest um, so much that you, you don't even notice that they haven't thanked you. So you, you have to notice the discomfort that a narcissist feels with a state of indebtedness. So have a browse at the McWilliams and Leppendorf article. That would be one I would asterisk. You know, I know I'm saying that you, you're free to choose whatever you would like to read, but I think that's a bit of a beauty, to be honest, and it's got quite a nice style to it. And what they offer is they offer you a lot of insight into the pain and confusion that people feel who are involved with narcissistic others. Like if you've got a mother or father or lover who's narcissistic, if they're at the neurotic level, it'll be sort of okay. If they're at the borderline level, it's going to be tough for you, okay? You're going to really, really experience a lot of suffering, and it helps to understand it. Because then you can start to refuse to play along with the malignant processes. Like, you can call them. If they say, have you forgiven me yet? You can say, is that an apology? You know? <laughs> So um, sometimes, unfortunately, the outcome of these defenses, both for them and for you, is a depletion of emotional energy and a destruction of joy. So you've, you want to be able to reclaim that into your life. Okay, I can't thank you enough for your attention. That was Lecture 28 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie peterson The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon.